I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design. Joining me in the studio, virtually of course, is architect and president of Historical Concepts, Andrew Kogar. We're talking about the history and future of architecture. Andrew Kogar is an architect, author, graduate of the University of Miami, and a veteran. He served as a combat engineer officer with the U.S. Army. Kogar recently wrote a book covering some truly incredible architecture. We're talking about urbanism, design, crafting some truly exquisite architecture that stands the test of time. That concept is really interesting to me because you know we know that architects don't create for tomorrow, right? But for decades of tomorrows. The book, Visions of Home, Timeless Design, Modern Sensibilities, delves into the design and decoration behind traditional architecture with a focus on keeping up with the modern ideals that continue to challenge designers. Are you subscribing to the podcast? If not, Please do, so you get every episode automatically when they're published. You can find Convo by Design everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. And now you can find us on designnetwork.org, a destination dedicated to podcasts, all things design and architecture. So make sure to check it out. Convo by Design is presented by Walker Zanger, a fantastic company and an equally fantastic design partner. While the Walker Zanger brand was built on the promise to inspire designers and architects to do their best work, there's far more to it than that. Yes, that promise is fulfilled every day through a commitment to provide the best ceramic, glass, stone, porcelain, and concrete surfaces and finishes. But at the heart is a family-owned and operated business that provides stunning surfaces for a well-designed home and does it to make designers and architects do their best work for their clients. Walker Zanger started in 1952, and they are absolutely one of the best trade partners a designer can have. Check out their newest collaborative line with designer Pieta Donovan, a collection of cement and ceramic tiles inspired by the patterns and colorways of the 1970s and created with a comfortable modernity. Walker Zanger is on the cutting edge of design, featuring products for every style and architectural feel you can create. And they provide homeowners with the materials that dream kitchens and baths are made of. Check out any of their 14 showrooms across the country or shop online walkerzanger.com. Com. I, I got a copy of your new book and I, I absolutely love it. And before I, before I dive into the book, though, you have a really interesting backstory. You knew what you wanted to do from a very early age. You found yourself in ROTC, which then led to a, uh, a tour, uh, what, one tour or two, but you wound up in the military. And mm-hmm. I, wanted, I wanted to sort of find out the... That's an that's an interesting but different path than I'm used to hearing about with regard to design and architecture. So I kind of wanted to to hear the backstory a little bit. Yeah, no, not a lot of people uh, with that military background and what we do, um, with uh, a notable exception in that that is a trait I share with Jim Strickland, our founder, um, which is part of what brought me there. But um, backing up a little bit, you know, I knew that I had. Uh, really wanted to pursue a career in design, um, you know, ever since really middle school and a formative art teacher that really taught art, not as arts and crafts, but art as culture, art history. We had art history quizzes, pop quizzes, um, you know, on a daily basis in seventh grade. I mean, who does that? Right. But it was, it was fantastic. It, it, 
it really added rigor and legitimacy to something that I think had been more kind of playtime in my educational background up to that point. And he had focused art lessons uh, that focused on career paths through graphic design, through architecture, through um, the traditional arts of painting and sculpting. But I mean, really kind of showing how design permeates our culture beyond just the kind of norms of what a traditional artist is or a starving artist. And, and that really was mind blowing for me. And it really kind of, then I started to think about industrial design, graphic design, um, you know, fine arts and architecture as career opportunities. And um, as I got into high school and got into science and started to really gravitate towards physics and, and trig. Um, yeah, those things started to kind of gel into place that architecture was really the perfect balance of, of, of design and, and science, art and science. You know, all the while I maintained my art classes, I continued to sketch, I continued to study art history. Um, and I had a really formative uh, art history teacher in high school who had a career as a graphic designer. Um, so again, I just find myself immensely lucky to have had two, I mean, not that all art teachers aren't great, but two art teachers that understood the vocation, the career and kind of the seriousness and rigor behind art and taught it that way. Um, it was just so formative for me. So, you know, that kind of set the, set my career goals and helped me to find my career goals. So then it was, well, how do I pay for art school. You know, a lot of the great art schools were private, not state. I mean, there's great state schools too, but, you know, I was going to high school in southeastern Massachusetts. So RISD was kind of the center of the world uh, for the Rhode School of Design for me from, from an art and design standpoint. Um, and I kind of, one of my first college tours, I realized is the gravity of how much that would cost. And, and not, that, uh, not that I didn't have a uh, a, a great upbringing and great parents uh, to provide, but I also had siblings and I also had the reality of I wanted to kind of make my own way. Um, so I started to uh, think about ways to go to school. I had a strong background in kind of civic service. Uh, I was an Eagle Scout. And so Boy Scouts kind of, the jump from Boy Scouts to the military didn't seem like a quantum leap. And I was looking at uh, West Point. And as I went to a presentation with my parents about West Point, realizing they didn't have a strong art program. So it was a half-hearted <laughs> fact-finding background. Um, that's when I learned about the ROTC scholarship. And I said, you know, I can do get, get school paid for, get a, get a great background uh, in leadership and go to any school I want. That sounds perfect. And so uh, I, I applied for the ROTC scholarship um, and got it, thankfully, uh, with architecture, knowing that I could still take a lot of art courses and still kind of dabble and leave some options open for the future. Um, and uh, I was fortunate enough to receive it. And then went on a college tour and uh, intentionally or unintentionally started at Cornell in February and worked my way down the coast and ended up in Miami in late March, and I'll let you figure out where I went. <laughs> Miami was, was without a doubt calling. Um, but what I loved about the University of Miami is the approach that they took. It was the only school where I saw just a huge variety of design influences, uh, both regionally, globally, uh, modern and traditional. It was just this cauldron of ideas, whereas other schools were amazing, but it was much more of a narrower focus. A lot, a lot of the work looked more similar. It didn't have the diversity that Miami had, and both in the work and in the student body. Um, so I mean, Miami was just such a draw culturally, 
um, academically. Uh, it just, it, I didn't know where I wanted to go or who I wanted to be as a designer, but I just knew that everything was there to explore. Um, so kind of going through that, uh, I really gravitated towards traditional classical architecture. I had another formative professor, Professor Cheo, who happened to be a graduate from RISD. And again, had a huge level of rigor where we did a Michelangelo class where we had to do a lot of applied research through scaled and measured drawings of Michelangelo's work. And then we had to write a 40 page paper based on our drawings. I mean, it was just, it was a, it was a level of applied research um, that he mentored us through that uh, has carried me and has been foundational on how I practice architecture and was lucky to find a firm that had a similar approach. Um, so that was, you know, it, it really, I think I, I had a great grasp of where I wanted to go. Now I just had to kind of get through this army thing. Um, and in another stroke of luck, I got stationed in Bamberg, Germany, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Site, the Bavarian beer capital of the world. Um, yeah, it was, and I had to live, uh, they didn't have a room on base for housing. So I had to live in a, uh, a, a German home uh, overlooking this castle. I, I, I can tell you, I just uh, pinched myself. Um, you know, there was some hard service put in to, to merit that, but it, there was also a lot of soft edges that came with that service uh, that was, I was really fortunate for. There's so much to unpack here. <laughs> um, so the, the first thing I want to do is back up a little bit. Um, and by the way, when you say, you know, uh, you'll let me guess where you, where you wound up it, it, between, you know, if given the choice of, of Miami, uh, seeing Miami in March, uh, there's virtually nothing better. Uh, <laughs> exactly. it's, it's, it's amazing. Um, I, I have, in having conversations with architects, it's really interesting because architects are different than designers. Designers tend to, by and large, be more uh, on, the, on the arts side of it than the math and science side. With architects, it's really, you know, it's kind of split down the middle for me as leaning more towards the arts and creative side or leaning more towards the math and science side and I've, I found that it really does lie in those shades of gray. You know, there, I've yeah. never met anyone who is perfectly down the middle and I've never met anyone who is totally one side or the other, but they tend to lean. And I'm, I'm kind of getting from you that there is more of a, a lean towards the creative side. Um, is, is that fairly accurate? And has it always I, that, been that way? Yeah, no, I think that is fairly accurate. I think I've enjoyed... The math and science side, um, you know, I really had to apply myself in middle school. I kind of, I, when I moved school districts um, from uh, Syracuse, New York to Buffalo, New York, I got misplaced uh, in, the, in the math side and um, started to kind of not do so great in school because I wasn't being challenged. And instead of being mature and applying myself, I took that as a chance to kind of push in the clutch. Uh, fortunately, my parents kind of corrected that. And then I had some friends that were in uh, the higher level math classes and I saw what they were doing, which was more problem solving, more applied mathematics, um, you know, getting into geometry, getting into algebra in the middle school. And I said, that's what I want to do. You know, I just, for some reason, knew that's where I wanted to go. So I had to kind of work, I had to prove myself and go from being a B minus C student to being a top A student to be able to jump into that next level. Um, I was fortunate enough to be granted to be able to do that. So then I kind of had a, a renewed passion for math 
and science at that point. Um, but I think that uh, it ended up kind of becoming more of a means to an end for me to help me um, facilitate an architecture what I, what I wanted to do creatively. But I think uh, one thing that has never left is uh, my passion for drawing, my passion for uh, you know, research of precedent of art history um, and architectural history. So I, I would say that definitely um, I have a healthy respect for science and math and I, and I feel comfortable with it, but I've probably let some, I've probably let that dull a little bit, but I feel like I'm always kept uh, and, and strive to keep uh, the creative side of me sharp and, and growing. And how cool is it and fully understand, I would think that for someone who is interested in architecture with, with a creative side, you know, being in Germany <clears throat> and being exposed to classical European architecture in addition to Bauhaus and sort of everything in between, right? right. But before that, being in Miami, I get, I, I lived in, my, in South Florida for a year and spent a lot of time in Miami. It's truly amazing to have all of those influences. If, if America is a melting pot, Miami is, you know, the very center of that because you've got yeah. everything. You've got Europeans, you've got South Americans, you've got North Americans, you've got Europe, you've got everything. That oh, rep strong representation from Asia, strong representation from the Middle East. I mean, it, it was all there. Um, and it was, yeah. Yeah, just, just getting kind of scratching the surface of what kind of is out in the world, but getting a chance to kind of put a, put a personality and a face to it with these exchanges through students and this um, awareness through faculty. It was, uh, it, I mean, it really sparked my desire to be stationed abroad and not stationed stateside. So I had to compete to be able to get stationed in Germany, um, but it was, it was an attention uh, from, from the beginning as I was, applying at the end of my senior year on where I was going to get stationed, listing my top choices, they were all international because I, I just want, I, I wanted to see and learn more. Um, and that was really sparked by Miami. And backing up a little bit, aside from what you learned from, from the University of Miami as it relates to art and architecture, what, what do you think you took away from living in Miami and seeing firsthand from La Cayocho to, you know, to the, the Fountain Blue to, you know, this amazing art deco, uh, this modern, you know, this explosion of color from, from architecture and design in the eighties, the whole Miami Vice vibe. <laughs> no, you that, know, that may have influenced my choice as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting too, because, you know, we kind of, we kind of mock, the 80s and we mock you know Miami Vice and and that whole element as it relates to to South Florida but what's really interesting with this anywhere you go anytime there's an influx huge amounts of cash and huge amounts of money into a regional location you get this explosion of art architecture and design and right. that's one of those places that was truly a, a beneficiary of that and I'm just curious how that affects an architecture student um, as they're kind of learning where they're where they want to be creatively. Well, I think what I really loved about it was you know there's this unabashed energy 
and spirit and a lot of the architecture that we think of in Miami in the 80s. But then, you know, you also had, you know, an architectonica just being kind of that quintessential Miami Vice moment, you know, that palm tree in the middle of a building, which, you know, I think I, I loved, you know, in middle school and high school, I thought, wow, you can do that. You know, but there's that there's that playfulness in that that inventiveness that that is there. But then, you know, the university itself is set in Coral Gables, which is one of the quintessential kind of American planning, planned neighborhood communities that is about as traditional and classical as it gets. Um, and, and, you know, so that background, so you've know, got these two extremes that I'm able to study kind of in American architecture movements at the same time. And then you throw on the Art Deco layers, the mid-century modern layers, I mean, it was all there to reach out and touch, you know, in ways that I think a lot of cities aren't fortunate enough to have. You know, maybe they go, other cities go deeper in certain genres than Miami does, but the breadth of exposure um, that was all there was, it was a working laboratory. Uh, you, I mean, it really, it really was able to found, you know, cement for me a process of um, understanding architecture by going out, looking at it, measuring it, drawing it, experiencing it and then absorbing that into what you do as opposed to rote copying of details or feeling on the other extreme of modernism that you have to invent everything brand new. Um, so it was this idea of being able to dabble and borrow and experiment that was very much alive in Miami uh, since its inception, really. Um, and so, so for me, that it was, it was uh, I can't think of a better place to have, have learned. And then to have a faculty that had specialties and expertises uh, in each of these areas um, I mean, it was just an amazing survey to, to draw from. You also, you know, while you're there and you're studying, you know, urbanist principles, and I want your take on this. I want your take on where we are now with the experience you have through school, with the firm, in the army, in Europe, where we are right now and what you've learned sort of about urbanism and infill projects and the idea of what what architecture is now after basically 10, 11 months of a pandemic. I, you know, it's hard sometimes to try to to try to view the positive side of things and to and to try mm -hmm. to take take the optimistic approach. And I look back at you know, the Spanish flu and the pandemic in 1918. Well, you know, after that came the Roaring Twenties where there was this new set of ideas and I can't help but think having, you know, having not been there myself, but I, I view you, uh, general term, you know, architects and designers as futurists where, you know, listen, you're not designing for five years or 10 years down the line, you're designing for 50, 75, 100 years, if, lo if not longer, right? Right, right. And what we're going through now has put a microscope on the way that we live, which hasn't happened for, for quite some time. And I'm curious how you view that and through the, the lens of your background, um, how that affects your design and how you work moving forward. Yeah, that, there's there's a lot there, and I think it's all it's all good points to consider. I think maybe I'll start a little bit more macro and then kind of dive into the answer a little bit more detail. But I, I think that um, in general, architecture and planning, uh, when you're in school, 
you're really looking at the big, huge, bold ideas that move the needle, that change, that change the world, so to speak. And you know, you look at Frank Lloyd Wright, you look at Le Corbusier. Um, but I think that uh, while they're all well-intentioned, especially Le Corbusier and a lot of the modernists that were reacting to the pandemic in 1918, you know, a lot of the clean air and, and broad acre cities and open areas, you know, were in a direct response to kind of a hangover from what had happened. Um, so I think it was all well-intentioned, um, but I think it's had disastrous effects when you look at the prominence that the automobile has placed on, especially in America, which really boomed at that time, um, and kind of the infrastructure that we have. You know, it's, I think it's hurt our cities in, in a lot of ways that we're undoing now. When you look at the movement of removing highway overpasses and kind of not just the visual blight, but the cultural damage that they did to the, the communities that they were placed into. And you look at like what happened with the big dig in Boston when that, when that fabric was restored on the surface or what's happening in you know, mid-market mid cities, mid-tier cities where they're just taking out the overhead highways and putting in boulevards and the vitality that comes back and stitching those neighborhoods back together. I guess what I'm saying is that through my time and my experience living abroad and my experiences here now, and especially during COVID, I tend to look more for the small but powerful gestures that will unlock a solution than the big, broad, sweeping gestures. I feel like more often than not, when you look back at history, the grander the vision, the more the unintended consequence. Um, but when you look at any, any classical tradition, it doesn't have to be Western European. It can be, in, in, we can get into this a little bit, but I've spent a good amount of time in the Middle East as well. You know, it, it, you go to any established culture that has continuity over the centuries, and it's, it's been adapted and modified, incrementally grown and improved. Um, there's a lot of solutions in how people live uh, that's been handed down. And it's been a little bit naive on planners and architects, I think, to... Uh, to say that um, just overnight, one person or one school of thought can have all the answers. And, and um, I don't think it means you don't try to make improvements, but I, I, I have just found, I am leaning more towards the writings of like Christopher Alexander and more towards the teachings of the new urbanists and, and really trying to, but even in the new urbanism, getting away from the greenfield and looking more at adaptive reuse and, um, you know, revitalizing Main Street by incremental development. I, I think that is really the key to our future. There's a lot of built environment in the U.S. And I think instead of just expanding, 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 I think we need to really focus on quality and improvement with the areas that we have um, and, and utilizing them to a fuller potential. And I guess that just brings back to COVID. I think during the lockdown, I think people obviously went stir crazy, but there's also, I think, a focus on quality of life. I mean, I've talked to people over and over again, and it's the horrific times that we're living in. But at the same time, everyone's had a chance to, I think, or most people have had a chance to take, take a beat and reconnect and really understand those personal connections and values. And then understand kind of what, how their built environment is helping or hurting their quality of life. Um, you know, I think commutes are, are brutal, but um, you know, people that can walk to work are out in the fresh air. They're not locked in a car with three people are taking mass transit. Yeah, so I think the radius of where you live and how you live and what's in that radius, um, you know, there, I don't, certainly big urban areas like New York City are very challenged during COVID, uh, but I would say the suburbs have some equal drawbacks as well in terms of having to get in the car and go everywhere and you have isolation that can happen. I think the mid-tier villages and communities that are almost complete communities but are walkable it's probably 
where I'm going to be leaning um, my shoulder to in terms of design in the future. I think that's I think that's fascinating, and it's it it also kind of brings us to the book, you know, vis visions of home, right? And I, I always I always like to sort of explore one of the things I learned, you know, in a past life of mine when when I was interviewing for Playboy, and I would talk to bands. One of the just fascinating for me how'd you come up with the name for the album? You know, how'd you, what, what <laughs> the name for the song? You know, I, I, it, there's something that's so creative in that it's, it's probably the most freeing thing that you get to do as a creator is come up with a title for something because that's the one thing that nobody can say, well, that doesn't make any sense. It's like, well, it makes sense to me. So that's what I chose. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hopefully it makes sense to other people as well for, for yeah. this instance. Yeah. Um, but vi visions of home, um, so appropriate. And I'm just curious because the, the title kind of says it all, right? This is what you're about to see. This is what you're about to read and explore. And so I'm curious when you're putting together this book, how did, how did you, because I, I view what I've learned is when architects approach a book project, they approach it, at least this is what I've heard and what I've gleaned from conversations that you kind of approach it very much the same way that you design a house. You know, there's a, there's a lot that goes into it, but it's all designed to work together. Yes. When, when you're ideating this, when you're putting it together, what was your approach? And specifically with this book, how did you put this together? Well, I think that um, that's a great question. Thank you. I, I think that it really started with how, and it was a struggle, how, how do I share as the author, how do I share um, who we are as a firm? Uh, in that there's so many talented people and, and uh, I, I have many partners and, you know, and I um, have been entrusted uh, by the founder, Jim Strickland, to, to be the president moving forward. But it really is a group and, and, and that group is bound by an idea and a passion. Um, and so I really felt like I had to be the caretaker of that. Um, and in some ways, it was uh, you know, a little bit daunting because I wasn't just speaking for myself. You know, I think with a lot of other named firms, uh, they, can, they have that freedom to kind of speak singularly. I felt like I had to be uh, an accurate representation of the group, um, but at the same time, give a voice to it that wasn't um, soulless or bland or, or plain. I had to, there had to be a personality in the author that came through as well. Um, so in order to feel comfortable with that, I really used the onset of the book as a chance to go through a firm uh, values and mission and vision process and interview every single person in the firm and find out what was important to them, um, what they believed HC stood for, what they personally believed in, um, and uh, you'll find that common ground and find a way to articulate it um, that we could get reinvigorated, refocused and kind of used as a rallying cry internally. Um, I was really thrilled to realize that a lot of what we had in place before I started that process was still very much intact. And that was thanks to Jim and his leadership. Um, but it was also thanks to the fact that it was a clear vision and a clear cause and that we've been hiring people based on those beliefs and, and they've been coming to us because of our purpose and because of our values. And so, um, you know, with that, it was, it was 
really enabling for me to be able to lean forward and kind of tell these stories. I mean, and what I just shared with you about my outlook on planning and the, you know, the future and, and, and how we can make improvements and where we need to be careful and respect the past, um, you know, those are shared outlooks uh, by the staff as well. So, I mean, I'm speaking for myself, but I also feel comfortable I'm speaking for the group. So, you know, when I went through that process and really got the chance to interview and, and establish our values and establish what's important to us and establish what we, what we want to carry forward, um, it really became clear that it was about a process and, and a set of beliefs more than an aesthetic preference and more than a project type. And so I really wanted to make sure that we picked a, a title that would be true to that process and true to that rigor, as well as true to that passion and that inventiveness. And so that's where visions kind of came from as a buzzword, because it's really how do we see things? How do we perceive things? And how do we communicate that uh, to our clients and to the world at large? How did you select the projects and why? And from that, I'm curious if you have a favorite. Uh, the the latter would be they're all my favorite. Okay. <laughs> Even the ones you know I what? Do. <laughs> I, I, I love I love the answer that is such BS, but I appreciate it. <laughs> well, I, I will say no. I will I will say too, and I kind of we'll start backwards, but. Um, I know that sounds like very coy, uh, but, <laughs> I, but, but um, you know, it just depends on the what and the why of how I'm perceiving the project, but they really, they, they change. I get really excited about uh, a lot of our projects for different reasons, you know, whether it's a certain style that they're exploring, the problems that we're solving, uh, the regions that we're working in, um, and, you know, whether it's my projects or our partners' projects, I, I just think that, um, because, because I understand the process and I know what and how the design has evolved, um, it really, it, there's an, a genuine enthusiasm and excitement for, for all of our work. I, I think that, um, yeah, I, I can go through some of the ones that I think have touched me the most per se, but I would say more often than not, um, the ones that I kind of gravitate towards or think the most fondly of, I think the common trait isn't necessarily the design outcome, it's been the, the interaction and the relationships during the process, you know, with the design team, with the consultants, with the clients. Um, you know, I, I, I'm so proud of all of our work, but I tend to remember those of, wow, that was a big challenge. And we all rolled up our sleeves and, you know, this interior designer brought this to the table and the clients shared this. And, you know, and then you kind of, when you see that, and then, you know, even within our own team, all the contributions that all the staff have made, when you kind of look at a building and you kind of reflect about and remember fondly the, the process that went into it and the creative, the collaboration, um, I can't not look at a built work and not have those connections. You know, I mean, when I look at other firms' work, it's much easier to say, oh, that's my favorite or not, because it's purely an aesthetic choice. You, you know, there, there isn't that emotional attachment uh, that goes through those relationships. Um, so I'm biased. <laughs> I, I, I get that. Um, and let me preface this by saying that I am a huge fan of design and architecture books. Um, I am because I, I'm tactile by nature, right? 
And I love, I love the discovery process of going through a book or a magazine for the first time and seeing what's next, right? And doing that exploration. And one of the things that I've, I've kind of learned about design and architecture books is because they're put together and they're built through the through the selection and choice process of of the creators themselves oftentimes you you get a certain view of what's presented and it's in this case with with you know visions of home one of the things that i really love is we're talking you know in many cases we're talking about traditional styles of architecture but you're also presenting you know, in the title itself, timeless design and modern sensibility. But in, in a lot of these, you know, there's really a, a traditional form of architecture, but it's, it's combined. The modern side of it is how it feels and how it flows and how it right. works. And I love that there's this balance between traditional and modern. It's not stark. It's not, it's not obtrusively, you know, this is modern because we're the Jetsons, but it's this is modern <laughs> right. because because it functions better. And yeah, that's a great ahead. no. I was just that's a great observation, and it leads to and I'm sorry to interject, but it leads back to kind of the, the last question that I didn't fully answer of why we picked the projects that we picked, and um, it, it was it, intentionally there was those juxtapositions of what we wanted to show. We wanted to show similar programs, but in different regions and our different uh, responses to those vernacular regions. We wanted to show similar projects in the same region, but a more modern and a more traditional take. We, we really wanted to kind of convey that um, depending on the client and depending on the team and depending on the region, um, we can have very different, but I, I, I would hope people see and we feel very successful outcomes um, and, and it's really about that process and about that rigor and you know even our modern projects have classical principles on proportion you know there's there is baked into their um, organic responses to the site and to the views and to the client needs so I, I think that um, yeah I would hope that the common thread besides our process the common thread on all the projects would be uh, that they're appropriate and that the aesthetic choices aren't arbitrary, but that they're well-intended and well-researched. Um, but it doesn't mean that we can't have a lot of fun and whimsy and creativity in what we do. And there, you know, there's some, some elements to this that some through lines in the work that I noticed and, and a couple are so, they're so simple, but they speak to that, that idea of, of modern urbanism, whether you're in the country, in the Hamptons or in the city, right? You get just, right. just little things like Dutch doors, little things like bodies of water placed within a close proximity to, to see through the windows, you know, very much the same way that, um, you know, some of the, the modern architects of the, of the 40s, 50s, 60s would, would put, you know, would use bodies of water in and around the structures with a lot of windows to sort of give that idea of bringing nature in and bringing right. the inside out so it's all cohesive. Um, and it, it feels like, like those through lines are, are prevalent through the book. And I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that that was, that was purely intentional. 
Uh, it, it absolutely is. And thank you for noticing that. I think our response to light and air and using natural light and the shadows and reflections they create as a decorative element in and of itself, both on the exterior and the interior, is, is very intentional in our work. Um, understanding the differences that are created by you know, high sight lines, even if they're narrow openings in the sense that it takes away um, you know, the horizon line. You feel like you're outdoors versus other areas when you want to frame the view and we can maybe go wider and shorter. I mean, all, all the, it's, it's almost like cinematography. You know, we are very intentional on how we're framing views, how we're bringing natural light and air into the building and how that is a design element inside the, inside the home. Um, so, you know, and I think that when you're looking at those things, um, and depending where the project is and what the immediate context is, your responses are slightly different. But I think when you have the um, intentionality to be aware of, of that element that needs to be addressed, you know, on every project, it does create those those through lines that, that you're noticing. And there's one project in particular. I want to ask about a, a bunch of others, a couple others actually, but. Um, Farmstead Revival. Yes. Okay. Um, when was this project complete? I'm going to, you know, if you, if you don't know, it's, it's totally cool, but I'm curious when this project was completed. Um, trying to, they're kind and of, okay. I, I'm not, I think, I'm not it, was, I think it was six spot. years ago. I think it was uh, close to six years ago. I mean, it seems like a blur, but, um, it was within five or six years, I believe. So we're looking at, uh, 2014. Okay. And there's just, there's so much here. Um, the, what is the purpose of this, of this property? Is it, is it a, is it hospitality? Is it residential? Um, because there are things like, you know, you've got a farmhouse, Right. Oh, I'm. And, by the way, I'm sorry. I uh, I misled you. That one was completed two years ago. <laughs> I, was, okay. I thought you were pointing to uh, you know, another project that we did that was a renovation in uh, Bridgehampton. I'm sorry. That was uh, so. This project for Farmstead Revival, yes, was completed uh, just within uh, the last two years. Okay, and you've got a you've got a you know this this traditional uh, rural country farmhouse that is completely. <clears throat> it's restored, it's modified, it's, you've got steampunk handrails. You, yes. You've got, you know, you've, you've got open wide spaces with, with rustic details and, you know, the, the exposed, you know, inner barn beams. It's just amazing. And I'm looking at a silo that was turned into wine storage with a, with a circular staircase through the center. I mean, it's just, I, I get this, I get this balance between rustic farmhouse and modern ideas of what is potentially available to people and, and then put into practice to see what it actually looks like. You know, a leather, a leather, a leather padded barn door, the likes that yeah. I haven't seen before. This is all, this is really, really cool. Well, thank you. That, it was uh, a lot of cues that you're looking at were a collaboration uh, with our principals and the interior designer. Um, and you know, I had a chance to be a part of this project as well. And then uh, Dominic Trishita uh, was the lead principal and work closely with the clients and interior designers on really bringing 
um, the the cool elements forward. I mean, agrarian doesn't have to be uh, period. It doesn't have to be dowdy. I mean, you know, the farm to table movement, the agricultural movement um, is pretty hip right now. You look at a lot of the shelter magazines or the magazines that are devoted to young farming. Um, it's uh, it falls in trend with kind of the makers and craft uh, space as well. So I think that there was this idea that, um, you know, it can, it can be a, the spirit of that building and its story that it's telling of the land. Um, really can be brought forward in a fresh and reinterpreted way. I mean, to see kind of the, the mid-century modern furniture that's in there, uh, you know, in this barn setting, there's a lot of juxtapositions, and, uh, but I think that the, the color palette, the material palette really ties the architecture and the interior design together in, in a fresh way. Um, but again, at the heart of it, it was a client that really wanted to tell the story of the land uh, by literally bringing back uh, what was at one time a functioning show barn where they sold cattle and, and having an adaptive reuse where he could have an event center that showcased the, the spirits and the food and the music of, of home, you know, in that region of Kentucky. Um, so for us, it was a very playful, very inventive project. At the same time, it was a very academic project in the research that we had to do. You know, a lot of that steampunk uh, references that you made, um, that was, you know, us having fun with the fact that this barn, when it was built at that particular time in the machine age, uh, wasn't heavy timber uh, framing and hand-hewn. It was built with two by slapped together and bolted together. So there's a lot of those bolted steel connections and ironwork that we just really leaned into and, and had fun with. Um, it was, it's, it's this idea that yes, the building had fallen into decay, but we kind of brought it back to what it was and then kind of did a left turn and said, okay, this is the altered narrative, how this building could have learned and could have grown. Uh, and and it, you know, it, even if it hadn't have gone dormant. And, and, and that continued use is, is kind of the narrative that we were trying to tell. And it comes to research of other buildings of that period in that region and kind of the paths that they've taken to preservation or neglect and kind of seeing the trends that come forward and then bringing that to this new building. Um, and I think the team was, was really successful in a lot of the, I think those tactile moments that um, we could touch and experience the materials. And it tells, it tells the story in the timeline of the building. And it, it feels to me like this was an experimental approach where it was, it was like, you know, I feel like when you take when you take design chances, whether you're a designer or an architect, an artist, whenever you take artist, whenever you make artistic decisions and you take cho and you make choices and you take chances, you know you run the risk of uh, critique and criticism, which I, I think yes. I think is is in some way missing from our industry a little bit. I wish I wish we would be a little bit more critical about the industry um, and and kind of call out fads and trends early on before they become, you know, the Mediterranean architecture of the 1990s. You know, we could save ourselves so much trouble yeah. if we did. Um, yeah. but, but that being said, you know, so many chances were taken here and so much experimentation with this particular project. And that's kind of what I, what I notice is there, is there is that one foot firmly planted in the past and the historical um, reference points in this project. And 
another foot planted in the future with look what's possible. Look what we can do. Look how you can transform. Because if you can transform this, you know, this old rural barn farm property into something contemporary, modern, but still has that comfortable feel. And it still reminds you of the, the days gone by in the past that, that so much has happened here, not just to bury the past, but almost to celebrate it with a, with a, with a view of the future. It yes. says a lot for what we can do. Uh, and again, back to changing times and what's possible. Yeah, no, I, I, I really appreciate you uh, picking up on all that. I think that's exactly what we wanted to do was to uh, you know, celebrate the agricultural heritage and, and the music and the food and, and uh, the reverence for the land in a building that felt new, didn't feel like a museum. It needed to have a vitality and an energy that would bring people in to learn and experience more. And I, I think this is um, that sentiment you're seeing on a whole broad level of spectrums, you know, whether it's shoemaking or whether it's where you get your local food or whether it's where you, uh, I mean, it's just, just the whole craft and maker culture that is you know, hyper local and, 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 and hyper focused on craft um, is you know, kind of what we were trying to express here in this building. And it did require us taking chances, but we felt comfortable taking those chances and working with the team. And I should say too, the landscape architect also pushed us, uh, Nelson Burwolf, they pushed us in a lot of directions uh, the same way, because this is just a piece of a larger master plan. Um, but you know, we felt like this is a great example of why we wanted to include in the book too, not just because we're proud of it as a building, but this is a great example where those principles and those values in that process that we apply to homes um, can extend to areas, shared spaces, public realms that are an extension of home. You know, this is this is a home for the arts. This is a home for culinary cuisine. This is a home for music. It is a shared experience. Um, it's meant to be communal and bring people together. And that has just as much importance uh, as, as individual homes and family homes. And I felt like it's missing a lot of, I mean, when our schools are uh, designed at the level of prisons versus what they were at the turn of the century, um, when you look at the Carnegie libraries, when you look at like a lot of the buildings that are valued, and we, we observe this from our planning work, a lot of the buildings that are valued from the past that don't get torn down, to get adaptively reused, there's this intrinsic level of investment. And I just find it a little bit sad that some of our best investment in ourselves was during the depression. Um, that we, we as, as a culture, we can't kind of find it in our own way to prioritize public and civic architecture and um, at the same dollar value as we do our homes. And I, that, that's a blanket statement. There's a lot of great communities that are doing that. And I think a lot of universities are, are bringing a renewed attention to, to architecture. And you're starting to see that uh, in courthouses and other buildings. So I feel it's on the upward trend. But I feel like this is a story that we wanted to tell, that um, it does have meaning, it does have purpose on the same scale as, as our homes. And that we, one doesn't, it doesn't have to be a lesser process just because it has a more public use. And so, um, yeah, for us, it was, it was a fun extension of ourselves and a leap of faith and an experiment and a test of a process. And we feel like it, it worked. I, absolutely. And another pro, uh, project, the Dowager Inn, Yes, yes. In, in uh, East, East Hampton. Yes, that is another uh, kind of atypical, you know, the idea of home as a hotel as a home. <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, that was, that was a lot of fun. 
Um, I mean, do you have a specific question you want to delve? Or do you want me to just kind of delve into the background well, of the project? You know, the the other I see again, I see a lot of through lines that I just think are are so interesting to me. You know, again with the light and the windows and the materials, yeah. and you know, there's there's one image. Um, it, it, let's see, I'm trying to see what room this is, but basically there's there's a fireplace. You've got this this seating sort of around the fireplace. I, I, I picked this particular image and I don't know if you know which one I'm talking about. The one with the George Kondo painting, kind of the, uh, exactly. the butcher in the red, yes. Exactly. So the reason, one of the reasons I love this as much as I do is because I'm a huge fan of small spaces. Um, I love big, I love vast and expansive, but I'm a huge fan of design and architecture. And I feel like when, you get design and architecture crafted around a small space. I, I don't feel like it's super easy, but it's a lot easier. If you've got big space, big budgets, you can do a lot, right? But with a small space, you're really limited and you have to make everything count. Yes. Everything down to the artwork and the lighting and the seating and the purpose and the, you know, how is this room gonna be used? And because it's it's as small as it is, but that's a place I could see myself spending hours and hours. It's, <laughs> yeah, so that that was the goal <laughs> to create that sense of connection, and I think that sense of um, intuitive understanding of how to use the space. I think a lot of spaces become a lot. My my one critique, and we're going back to the critiques. I I think that um, there's a a lot out there that is just exquisite to look at. But as a space, it almost becomes um, more about a vignette or, or, or a backdrop for vignettes as opposed to a space for living. And I think that um, that really has to count for something. So I think that having a, having a space that is designed um, where people can immediately feel comfortable and understand how to use the space and what they what they're should be doing in the space, um, is, that's really important to us. And this client in particular, an interior designer, um, Brian Grable, he was very empathetic and intuitive in terms of how his guests were going to use the space and, and what what he wanted uh, wanted them to feel comfortable at. And, 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 and the flip side, there were some areas he didn't want them to feel at home that <laughs> he wanted to keep as part of the private realm, but never having to have that awkward moment of, you know, hey, what are you doing back at this nook? This is the master bedroom area. Or, hey, you don't go up there. Like, you know, the house doesn't feel that way. I think everyone immediately gravitates towards it. Um, I think there's an aesthetic allure, but the comments I get more often than not are just welcoming, inviting, charming, cozy. People know how to talk, engage, and, and you know, they, there's nothing that feels like, oh, I can't take my cup of coffee into that room. Everything is, is really easy to read. And that came from, uh, I love this process. If we can incorporate it over and over again, that'd be great. But uh, we spent a week together in London um, and, uh, you know, the four of us, uh, my wife and, uh, Brian and his husband, and we really looked at a lot of great hotels and restaurants and clubs and lounges and really kind of understood and peeled it back from beyond just the decorative elements, but to, you know, what was really creating that space, you know, in a lot of instances, it was the height of the chair. It was the placement of the mirror on the wall and the angle of reflection and what light was doing and where light was being reflected and where light was being absorbed. And same thing with sound. 
and that's the that's kind of the hotelier, uh, the hostelier kind of angle that we brought to to the uh, to the project. Um, and then when you look at East Hampton itself, it has a, a strong tradition of these homes being turned into inns. And so we could have took that Anglo precedent of experiences and kind of grafted it onto the, the uh, East Hampton precedent of how buildings grow and learn. And, and that's kind of the alchemy that you see here. But it was really through these small series of spaces and how they would be used and how you go from room to room. And that one room in particular that you like, um, it was really important to the client and I've carried this with me on every project since. Um, he wanted a space that was about receiving and about kind of having, he called it a little gossip area where people could kind of remove themselves from the party, and, but you know, not feel like they had to get back to somewhere else. They could still have kind of a, a space there. Um, but most importantly, and I think this is so intelligent given our current technology, he wanted a place where people could feel good leaving a party. Right now, you, you call you call an Uber if you're being socially responsible and you know you're not driving. Right, you call an Uber, but there's that awkward moment of okay, well I said goodbye, but now I'm really saying goodbye. But now I need to wait for the driver at the door. But then we say goodbye again and thank you. And, yeah. and he wanted to create that area where people could say goodbye, go sit and look at their phone, you know, in a place of you know dignity, quiet dignity, and then go out the door. You know, it, right. it, it was much more just the fact that he was thinking through how to make his guests comfortable at every moment in the home, even when they're leaving, uh, was a lesson that I've just, I've loved. And so I, I, I hope that that space uh, yeah, is successful that way. I think it is. Um, and I think you know, it's a lot of people have gravitated towards that. And if just maybe people that come in the door that wouldn't have sat down, sit down just because they can and enjoy that space. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I love it. It's, uh, it, it's great as, as are all the projects in the book. And I, and I really didn't, I, I did enjoy the, I enjoyed the journey. I thought it was great. And I enjoyed this conversation as well. And by the way, the, the book is Visions of Home. And um, I will put a link to that in the show notes. So if you're listening to this and you want to check out the book, go to the show notes uh, and you can click through and find it. Andrew, I, I cannot thank you enough for the, for the time today. This was really great. Josh, the questions were fantastic. And thank you for the opportunity. I've really enjoyed talking with you and uh, love to do it anytime again in the future. Um, you have really great questions and thank you for your time. Thank you, Andrew, for coming on and sharing your story. Thank you for listening. Without you, there is no joy in doing this. You are so greatly appreciated. My hope is to bring you inspiration and sublime design through these conversations, to give you that extra push to be the most creative designer you can be. I think we did that here. Please make sure you are subscribing to the show so you don't miss a single episode. You can also follow us on Instagram at Convo by Design with an X and ConvoByDesign.com. Be well and try to remember to take today first. Mm-hmm.